0: Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 2024 Santa Fe, available early 2024. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code iHeart for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A dot com.
1: Welcome to Made by Women, a new podcast by the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio. At a moment when businesses face some of the biggest challenges in recent history, we bring you inspiring stories, practical insights, and shared learnings to help you successfully navigate in today's environment. Every Thursday, Made by Women will showcase the experiences of legendary women entrepreneurs, fierce up-and-comers, and and everyday women who found success their own way. Consider this your real-world MBA designed for the new now. I'm Kim Azzarelli, and thanks so much for joining us today. The business world is full of pivots, but few have redirected their careers quite the way Christy Turlington Burns has done to have enormous impact. One of the world's most famous supermodels, she has spent the past 10 years creating and building a highly effective nonprofit, Every Mother Counts. The goal of Every Mother Counts is to bring down the number of maternal deaths worldwide. The death rate is unacceptably high, says Christy, including in the U.S., and most of those deaths are preventable. Every Mother Counts provides the education, advocacy, and support that's making a difference, but getting the organization to where it is today was a long journey. It started with Christie's own experience in childbirth and her desire to make pregnancy and birth safe for every mother. Building this nonprofit has taught her invaluable lessons in leadership and how to build an organization with impact. I sat down with Christy to talk about her fascinating journey and what she's learned along the way. Christy, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Christy, you became world famous at a very young age through your incredibly successful modeling career. And since then, you have really used your power for purpose to address the critical issue of maternal health through the founding of Every Mother Counts. For our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about Every Mother Counts?
0: Yeah, I founded Every Mother Counts in 2010. And the impetus for getting involved in maternal health and becoming an advocate for global maternal health was a personal experience when I delivered my daughter, Grace, who's now 16, almost 17. I had a postpartum complication. You know, at the time, you know, was very ready and prepared for this phase of my life, and I felt well supported and had lots of options for my health care. Uh, and yet the unexpected happened. But that um, experience really opened my eyes to a, a global tragedy, which is maternal mortality. And I started that journey then. And I think, like, partially the experience, but then also the uh, realization that there were hundreds and thousands of girls and women around the world who have been dying or having very serious complications that were related to childbirth. It was shocking to learn, but also really i guess compelled me to want to do something about it and so yeah i started this journey and uh, it took me a little while to figure out exactly how and what and when i would do what i've come to do but it was a process of learning and then going back to school and studying public health and global health and then figuring out what i could contribute in a meaningful way to try to prevent these unnecessary deaths
1: so I hope in this conversation, we'll get into a lot about maternal health, both globally and also here in the U.S. But first, let me just take you back for your personal story. Where did you grow up? How did you get into modeling? And did you always know you wanted to start an organization dedicated to advancing women?
0: No, I did not know (laughs) that I was going to do that. (laughs) Um, I grew up in Northern California. I'm from the East Bay Area. My parents both worked for Pan American Airlines. My mom was a flight attendant and my dad was a 747 pilot. My mom is from Central America. So I guess I had this connection to a country and a community that were different than the community and country that I grew up in. And so I guess I would uh, accredit her to kind of opening my eyes early on and having the experience of going back and forth to a developing country and having the kind of young brain to like, just take in information and I could sort of You know, disparities kind of really struck me um, then and still do now. I started modeling when I was like 14 years old. And it seems crazy now that I have a teenager of my own. (laughs) Um, But (laughs) we moved as a family to Miami when I was about 10, because of my dad's job, Pan American was uh, headquartered there. And my dad was a training captain for a few years. And then um, my sister and I were horseback riders. And we were discovered, for lack of a better word, one day while riding our horses and taken to have our photographs taken. And um, with my mom's permission, of course, <laughs> and, uh, those photographs ended up um, into the hands of a, a local agency who then linked me back to New York. And so, you know, I, I didn't know I was so young at the time that I I honestly didn't know. Like, I didn't even look at a fashion magazine. I didn't really know uh, what a model was, to be honest. I was, you know, (laughs) i was got a mouthful of braces. I still don't think of it as a career, although I still do model on occasion. And, you know, what for me was exciting about it was travel, like right out of the gate. That was something that I had um, inherited through my parents, like a love of travel and seeing the world and being off the beaten path. And I just had this very adventurous kind of spirit. And so for me, that that job, what it offered was independence, because I was able to earn an income and be able to contribute a little bit to my family,
1: right, the dream,
0: the dream, the dream. And so yes, you know, I, I stayed in school until I graduated high school. And then I literally moved into my first apartment, like, days before I turned 18. And I thought, like, this is it. I'm living in New York City, and I am so independent and what a life! And then, as soon as I wasn't a student anymore, who was a model like in my summers and part time, suddenly like I didn't like I, I didn't like that uh, <laughs> I didn't like that description. I didn't like it. Didn't feel like me.
1: Right, right.
0: So I I started thinking about going back to school pretty early, but I didn't actually do that until I was about 25. So I would say 10 years into like working pretty steadily, I was like, okay, now it's time. And I enrolled at NYU. And that's kind of where I feel like, you know, I started to become a little bit more, I don't know, committed to figuring out what I wanted to do and what explore the various interests that I had. I started to you know, experiment a little bit with philanthropy and, you know, I various causes in my youth were becoming, you know, also kind of pandemics. I mean, HIV AIDS, I grew up with, I mean, when I was 18, 19 years old, I was losing people quite often. I knew many, many people who had had HIV AIDS and and who as a result passed away or were part of those early drug trials. And so I had also some personal experience and interested in global health from that perspective. And then, you know, over the years got to be part of some other incredible endeavors or working on global health, whether it was, you know, Uh, the one campaign early days or red when that was initiated after. And I got to, you know, continue to travel, but also start to learn about the disparities, right? Because not everybody has the same access as to information, let alone drugs and services. And then I lost my dad when I was in my late twenties from lung cancer. And so again, public health, like, that's like one of the things that I, I go back to a lot when I think about my exposure to public health. Um, so I had been a smoker in my early 20s and late teens too, probably, but losing my dad to lung cancer while I was in um, in college, like that was a huge uh, that's hard. awakening and opportunity. Yeah, um, it was hard. But I also, you know, the way that I that I dealt with it was like jumping in and learning all I could. Learn And then sharing my story sharing the story of my dad, sharing my own story, having, you know, been addicted to tobacco and, and cigarettes. And so I got in fairly early at a, at a important time for prevention and cessation around tobacco products. That was my first foray. I was going to the Capitol a lot and I testified um, with Senator Lautenberg in New Jersey. Um, There's all of those tobacco cases and trials. And so I was able to lend my voice at a really critical time for that particular public health crisis. And so by the time I became a mom years later, and there was another kind of crisis happening, I had some experience and some practical knowledge that I was able to put towards this issue, which is the one that I've been dedicated to for so many years now.
1: You started Every Mother Counts in 2010. Can you tell us a little bit about the issue itself? And, you know, we often think about maternal mortality being a developing world issue. But I think you've educated us to the fact that that's, in fact, completely false. Right. Yeah. I
0: mean, I think when I started to learn about maternal mortality, I really, like, I, I was shocked because I thought, you know, I'm becoming a mom and I don't even know that, that 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 this is an issue still, like in the 21st century, that women are dying, bringing life into the world. Uh, so I, that that first realization and then, like, digging a little bit deeper for me, I think, you know once i learned that there was a problem i thought okay well clearly this is happening in um in low income countries and uh, if it's happening at all, it's going to be happening in places where, you know, there's an infrastructure, there isn't a health system. And then I learned, you know, in that process of exploring what was happening outside of the United States, that the U.S. was ranked horribly. Also, we are in our second decade where maternal mortality rates have con- continued to be on the rise, and we are one of only a two industrial industrialized countries with a rising maternal mortality rate. So, back in 2003, when I became a mom, I think we were ranked 41st in the world. And today we are ranked 55th. So, we've fallen really far behind in just 10 years, in just a decade. Wow. So, uh, you know, I, I look at this issue as a global tragedy, which it is. And still, there's this education curve around letting people understand that the United States is part of a global community you know, in 2010, when I started Every Mother Counts, it was a really important year for um, this issue. I think in part because the millennium development goals were at kind of a halfway point and maternal and child health, maternal and infant health actually were the goal that had the least progress, you know, it was, they were lagging. And to me, that just felt shocking. Like why are women and why are women and babies the ones that are not getting the care and attention that they need? So before starting the organization, I actually made a documentary film and that film's called No Women, No Cry. And so between 2008 and 2010, I traveled around the world really documenting stories of women and families and meeting a lot of women in their final stages of pregnancy and sort of not knowing how their stories would play out. Where were the settings that they were delivering their children? What kinds of access did they have? And initially You know, just distance itself was a huge barrier. The other piece was, you know, uh, being able to access like trained, skilled providers who were able to not only recognize complications before they were emergencies, but also were equipped to be able to care for the women in this various cases that would come through the door. And then, you know, just 2010, there really wasn't the awareness or the political will, I would say, in a number of countries, including our own, you know, there was this kind of building momentum with a few first ladies and then a few heads of state that were starting to talk about it as the, you know, millennium developments were getting traction and starting to build. And I think the timing of my film coming out in 2010 and me coming out with it with you know, some visibility and some recognition, like having a platform to be able to talk about it. And really the film became this great medium for people to be able to see, like they're starting to learn about the statistics, but then to be able to see the faces, hear women speaking about their struggles and their challenges, but then also putting a framework, which was look what can be done. And so getting that awareness and bringing people into that conversation, not just heads of state or policymakers, but everyday people, people like myself who'd gone through birth and had a complication um, and were able to have the care that they needed in that critical time when they needed it most. That was the group of people that I really wanted to engage. And so a big part of what Every Mother Counts has stood for really is, you know, it's we've been an invitation for more people to participate in becoming part of the solution, right? To like give people the language and platform to be able to share their stories, to be able to bring others in, to be able to point them to what kinds of policy change needs to
1: happen. It's interesting you say 2003 is when you had your daughter, because I lost a friend who I grew up with in Brooklyn in 2003. She was giving birth to twins, and she passed away. Yeah, and I was, you know, even as you're talking now, I was thinking that, you know, her story seemed very isolated, and it was so upsetting, but it just seemed like something bad that happened to her. And I think there's a little bit of this kind of isolating the stories in a way so that we don't see it as this issue, which is that this is a systemic issue that's happening in this country, in every country, and there are concrete things that we could be doing.
0: That's right. I mean, sadly, you know, you can't really pick up a magazine or a newspaper today without reading a story about a maternal death. And it's not to say that they weren't happening before, like your friend. But as you say, they were not getting any kind of media traction, for sure. I think in part because, I mean, my sense is that, there's still so much fear around it. I think there was a time not long ago where people did die in childbirth and they died in childbirth frequently. Just hygiene alone has made such huge advancements in public health. Now we have so much more information and I would say hospitals became the sort of primary place where women would deliver their babies. And then what we found over time was that childbirth became incredibly over-medicalized. And so we have... You know, we have women who are dying in this country because they have chronic health conditions and they might not have insurance or they might not have adequate coverage or they're not coming to care, not seeking care as early as they should be to be able to address um, their health conditions. You have issues of racism, institutional racism, systemic racism, and you have explicit and um, implicit bias at our institutions and our medical facilities. But you also have a case of over-medicalization. So you have, you know, perfectly healthy women who could deliver naturally. Um, You have our system saying, yeah, you know, we actually want to induce you and we're going to rush this This uh, very normal physiological process. And in doing so with drugs, you know, there are instances where those drugs are. Causing heart attacks or hypertension, and that's putting women at risk. And when women have unnecessary C sections, it's a real surgery, right? right? That sets people up for potential risks, and certainly postpartum risks or subsequent complications with their um, next pregnancies. And so, there's a whole lot of things that that could be avoided if we were looking at, you know, at this in a more comprehensive, more holistic way
1: you are really trying to influence the way the world thinks about this issue, educating, as you say, policymakers, influencers, and, and everyday people to understand this issue. If that wasn't hard enough, you're actually building an organization, which we all know building any organization comes with the struggle. So what challenges have you faced in building your organization? Maybe you give us an example of one of your most difficult moments. And really, what gives you strength in those moments?
0: I had started a couple of businesses, so I could liken the experiences of starting a nonprofit to some of the learning that I experienced with starting businesses. I guess looking back, I think what's really important no matter what you start is having a plan, right? <laughs> having like a clear plan, a business plan. I was clearly taking this seriously. But I didn't see myself actually starting an organization. I started with a, with a campaign and the campaign was there to help the film along. And I thought there are a lot of organizations out there and many of them had maternal health as one of their focuses. But what I found after a couple of years was that not any of them <laughs> had mother at the center of them, right? There is a mm-hmm. lot of organizations that were very focused on, um, on the baby. And they were looking at the mom as really the vessel of like healthy start to childhood and childhood development and all those things, but not for the mom herself.
1: So interesting. Yeah. And so the
0: every mother counts and I panicked almost last minute to like, should, I, should we call it that? And in the end, it was so important that we kept mother in the, the name and what the organization, what it's called and what we stand for and what we do is that it's just that like, we need like the mom to be center of this because you can't have a healthy child or a healthy family without a healthy mom. There wasn't any organization who was saying like, Hey, lay people who are not um, policymakers, you know, share your story. People hear this information and they say, what can I do? And so we really became that entity. And I, there's a lot of learning that happened. Like I thought when we went through the process of becoming a 501c3, I'd always heard that this took a long time, right? This could take a couple of years. For us, it didn't take long. And suddenly like there we were. So we had to, you know, I had to put a board together. I had to like like start to hire people. And I didn't want to move too quickly. I really wanted to make sure that we weren't just there because we were being told to be there because there was a gap. I really wanted to be as, as mindful and thoughtful about what we were going to be. And so I wanted to go slow. And yet there was this opportunity and the time was right. Time was passing or getting towards the end of the millennium development goals. There was conversations about what the next set of goals were going to be, what the sustainable development goals, like That the, it was needed now. Um, so, you know, looking back after 10 years, I don't know that I could do it any differently, but I sometimes am thinking like, okay, I want to be more planful. And yet, you know, you can plan, 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 and then who knows what's going to happen. Honestly, you know, I now have the team that probably couldn't have been by my side in those early days. And so over time and trying to figure out like, where could we have the most impact, you know, starting small and then, you know, learning through our partners and having like, you know, really working on the sort of trust-based philanthropy model, which is like, I view our grantee partners around the world as true partners and they know better than anyone what their needs are and what the needs of their communities that they serve are. And so really being an entity that could really get behind those individuals and those smaller grassroots organizations and really be the support system that they needed to be. I really think of ourselves as like an engine that can really help to incubate other ideas and other models of care that are effective, but too small and falling through the gaps from these larger NGOs.
1: It's so interesting what you said about timing, because I think in every entrepreneur story, there's always this incredible timing question, right? Like things happen when they're supposed to happen and you want things to happen that don't happen. You have to kind of plan, but at the same time, be very nimble because you really can't control. Yes. There are those very difficult moments though, when you doubt yourself and you're, you're thinking, well, why did I do this? Like, is this even going to work? Have you had those moments? And if so, what gives you strength in those moments?
0: Yeah. I mean, I I feel like I've made some decisions around hiring sometimes, which have not been ideal. You know, it's like we had a lot of volunteers early on because, you know, we were small and people wanted to be in it and participate. And I think I didn't anticipate like that seemed like such a gift, like, oh, how amazing people just want to help. Um, (laughs) And then of course, as you grow and, you know, you have to professionalize and, you you know, at a certain point you kind of get what you pay for. So you also need to compensate people (laughs) that became, you know, a big step in in professionalizing. And so I'm much more clear about like what our needs are and really getting the person that's the right fit for that. And we're still a small team or 11 people. I mean, I feel like my team right now is, is so strong and they all have such unique skills to be able to bring to the table. And I want to be the kind of leader that surrounds myself with people that are creative thinkers, that are problem solvers, but that are also that, like you you mentioned, nimble, like agile, right? Right. Other challenges, gosh, I mean, I think there's been a lot of like funders that have come to us and Wanted to give us more money than we were even ready to, um, you know, be able to deploy, to be honest, but to do something very specific that wasn't necessarily what we were meant to be. Right. So there were early days where I said no to large foundations and people would say, like, how do you do that? And I thought, I don't want to get into a position where it's the tail wagging the dog. I don't want to be pushed into a corner. I want to have the ability to evolve and to move as we need to. And if you get stuck because you have a funder that sort of calls the shots for you, I could see how much of a trap that was in in the, in the NGO world. And I didn't want to be a part of it. So that made us have to be creative and have to find other ways to raise funds. And really our goal was like raising funds, but primarily to educate the public. So could we educate the public engage people and really like get them to feel like they were a part of something part of a movement part of a solution and so that's been like figuring out our own way and there's a lot to be learned from what people have done and other organizations have done out there i'd asked a lot of questions how would you do it differently why did you choose this country this i mean we bit off more than we could chew early on too like we're a tiny organization where we have uh, partners in six countries, and at one point we had eight countries. It's like that's not manageable because you didn't want to make a commitment and then have to renege on a commitment when you're talking about people's lives and so how do you learn and how do you figure out what's your threshold and like where can you you know where does it become a strain on another organization where where you know Where do you become not the value add that you imagined yourselves to be? And so that just takes a lot of like a lot of uh, of of reflection.
1: I was going to say soul
0: searching. Exactly. (laughs) My gosh, starting a a a nonprofit. I often tell people that are business people, like there's no exit strategy, right? There is no exit strategy. I mean, not that I want to stay in business. There's that example too, right? Like if if you do what you what you set out to do, if you stay with your mission, the hope is that these, you know, these stupid deaths, as we like to call the deaths that are unnecessary, they won't be happening anymore. You need to be there until you get there. And I don't see our issue in particular being the kind of issue that just goes away in 10 years, you know?
1: That's so interesting. So it's really a mindset. So you really have to have your North Star, just like you did when you were deciding what funding to take. You kind of have to keep true to your mission and be flexible as to what's happening. For example, Right now with COVID, how is that affecting Every Mother Counts?
0: So as COVID hit, the first thing that happened, which was really surprising for us in a way, was the conversation immediately went to people are afraid of hospitals. People are pregnant. People don't want to go to the hospital to deliver. And that resonated in such a strong way because, first of all, we advocate for a number of safe birth settings for women and having more birth options right, than just hospital births. And around the world, we need to do better to have more options for women who are terrified. How do we address their concerns? How do we protect not only the, the moms and the families that are afraid to go into these facilities, but then how do we really make sure that that the health workers are adequately protected? And in early days, that wasn't happening. So there was fear on all sides. And we know um, that fear-based medicine and fear-based healthcare is not good for anyone. And so that was one of the first things that we did. I joined a task force um, that Governor Cuomo Um, set up that was around COVID and and maternity care. And his office helped us to um, sort of broaden the definition of safe birthing sites in the New York area. And um, we were able to identify great partners who had a birth center in Brooklyn, who were able to, they'd found a site and there was already this process of trying to get this birth center running, but we were able to help expedite that. And so this birth center is now up and running. It's the, called the Jazz Birth Center of Manhattan because it's um, it's based in an old jazz hostel that's uh, for musicians. And it was a perfect setup and it's functioning really well. And we've made these advances already in COVID where now there are all these safety protocols which have been implemented across the board in um, not only the New York state, but across so many states because New York really was a front runner and learned so much early on and has been so open about what learnings have happened. And then I think for, for a lot of people seeing the sort of first COVID, then the disparities, the striking, you know, information about who was most vulnerable to um, the pandemic and what which populations were the ones not getting the care because they already weren't getting the care, who was suffering the most and who was not getting you know getting seen. Um, these are the same populations that we've been focusing on and trying to support um, through all of our grassroots community-led, uh, partners, right? I, I understand like how systems need to be strengthened, how um, the way people are trained to receive people that uh, again, this, this racism, this bias that exists um, in our in our system, how it's harming people, and so. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of the storytelling we've we've created over over many years. and Giving Birth in America is a film series that I, I launched before the last election, you know, just to keep maternal health, like you know, up on the agenda um, in the election process. And we didn't think we had to, right? So in this four-year period, it's been actually an incredible time to drum the beat louder because the the need has been so clear and as you know women's health has been targeted and as planned parenthood has been targeted and as more and more facilities have been shut down and women live farther and farther away from um from quality care um you know it it's it's been such an important time and so there are more bills that have maternity care um at the center, there's a whole momnibus of bills that has been introduced by the Black Maternal Health Caucus and lots of legislators, including Kamala Harris and um, Senator Booker. And 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 because of COVID and because a lot of those bills hadn't necessarily been passed, they've been able to integrate language that is very COVID specific um, to address disparities, racial bias, all these things that they were there, but now this is opportunity. And so again, going back to the timing is everything. The silver lining of this pandemic for us is that it's really woken up um, a lot of people to, uh, to the systemic problems and the populations who are, are truly the most vulnerable and will remain so um, until we're able to get a, a real handle on this.
1: Well, that leads me to my last question, but uh, just hearing what you've just said makes me very optimistic. But obviously, these are very difficult times for everybody. What makes you optimistic in this very difficult time? In addition
0: to seeing these opportunities come up and, and to be in a position as an organization to be able to say, like, I know... So many um, solutions to these problems that are popping up, and to be able to help to like facilitate those conversations, to bring more voices to the tables, um, to bring more diverse voices to the tables, um, that has been that that gives me hope because there's a receptivity that um, that people want to hear those perspectives now more than ever. Um, but I would have to look at my own kids honestly. My daughter. It's just blowing me away by her focus and her passion for social justice and her her use of her own platform, which is relative to you know <laughs> who she is in the world. But it's she is relentless; like she has not gone a day without posting about Breonna Taylor. Like not a day. I see this this group of youth who are participating in such a way that i don't see them becoming complacent like other generations like my generation was right just to see that that this like the youth culture like People are are awake and I hate the expression woke, but they, they, they are in a time when they understand technology and they understand the positive impact of this connectivity and about community and they have a voice, um, and they know the power of that voice. And so I've got to say that my, my kids and their peers and, um, you know, kids of that I don't even know, that's who's inspiring me right now and who's giving me hope.
1: Well, Christy, thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to everything you continue to do with Every Mother Counts, and we will be there. Uh, Hopefully, Seneca Women can support you in lots of ways, but I I hope our listeners now get a sense of the incredible impact you have made for the last 10 years and will continue to make. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Such good and important work. Christy Turlington burns shows us why truly every mother counts. Christy has built a highly effective and impactful organization, and there's so much we can learn from her experience as a social entrepreneur. First, have a plan and be prepared for success as well as failure. Christy thought it would take a long time for her nonprofit to get going, but when things fell into place more quickly than she expected, she had to move fast to build a board and hire staff. Second, be smart in your hiring. You want a diversity of voices and talent, and you want people who are nimble, agile, and who can deliver. And if your organization depends on volunteers, realize that at a certain point, you'll have to add professionals to your team if you're going to grow. Finally, stay true to your North Star, to the kind of organization you envision. When one large foundation offered much-needed funding, Christy said no. She didn't want a major donor calling the shots, or as she says, the tail wagging the dog. She stuck to her vision, and the enormous impact and success of Every Mother Counts speaks for itself. Made by Women is brought to you by the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio, with support from founding partner, P&G. This is...
0: Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Hey there, it's Ryan Seacrest for Safeway. Now that spring is here, it's time to focus on self-care and revitalize your personal care routine. Now through March 26, head in store, shop for all your favorite personal care essentials and earn four times rewards points. Shop for items like Crest toothpaste, secret deodorant, Old Spice deodorant, or Gillette razors. Offer expires March 26.
1: Restrictions apply. Promotions may vary. Visit Safeway.com for more details.